I really do regret, let me say one more thing. Um, my, my one regret on this trip is that my family's not with me. Um, I miss them dearly. have a wife, been married to her for 11 years, three kids, five, four, and one. My oldest daughter is uh, Madison. Um, I've got a son named Piper, who's four, and uh, a little one-year-old named Marley. So um, two birthdays coming up in this next month. Love my kids to death, love my wife to death, and can't wait to get home to them tomorrow. Ephesians 3, I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And our text in particular, Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you have spoken, that you've revealed yourself to us and preserved your revelation to us. We give you thanks, Lord, that through it, daily, you speak to your people, weekly, you speak to your church. We give you thanks, Lord, for the, the value that you um, place on these corporate gatherings when your word is publicly read and expounded, the, the presence and the activity of the Spirit in these moments to perform his wondrous work to sanctify us. So Lord, we present ourselves before you once again, like we do every week, pledging ourselves to submit to you, to whatever you might say through your word and this text in particular today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I found some of the songs not only um, very close to, to home because we sing some of the very same songs, but, but very fitting for the way that uh, we're going to introduce this sermon. So, by definition, a doxology is an expression or an ascription of praise to God. Doxologies are all over the Bible, the book of Psalms, every, everywhere. I'm going to add a few uh, words um, perhaps of clarification to the end of that definition, just so, we're, just so we're clear. So doxology is an expression or an ascription of praise to God for who he is and for what he has done. So by definition, ascription of praise to God, I'm adding for who he is, for what he's done. Because to me, those few words make a big difference because they reserve praise for the only God whose being 
is self-generated and whose nature is therefore untainted by sin and whose actions therefore are always good and trustworthy and praiseworthy because they are the overflow of his perfect being. So doxology is not for lifeless idols or created things. Doxology is rightful for the true and living God alone. And we begin talking about doxology because our text this morning is, in fact, partly doxology. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, is an ascription to praise, of praise to God for who He is, for what He's done, and for what He will do. And I want to use this text this morning to push us to be a people whose knowledge of God always leaves us with uplifted, uplifted hands in praise to God for who He is and for what He's done, and always in a posture of knees bent low in prayer for what He might be pleased to do in the future. So on our way to that end, let's spend a few minutes placing these verses in their context in Ephesians, especially since we're just taking one week, I'm a guest, don't know where you've been in your study of the Word, I believe you're in Philippians right now, but we're taking this week to hear a different voice and we're jumping into the very middle of a letter and we're just picking two verses to focus on. So we do have to do some work to place those verses so that we do justice to those verses. And it's really significant that Ephesians 2, 3 verses 20 and 21 are the last two verses of the first main section of the letter. So if you can think of Ephesians as a letter divided into two main sections, that would be helpful for us. Not just helpful, but it would be accurate for us this morning. Chapters 1 through 3 are the first section. Chapters 4 through 6 are the second section. The first section is highly doctrinal. Very little application. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about God, our triune God, His person, His works. The second section, chapters 4 through 6, is the application of the doctrine that is filled out in the first section. So our text this morning is the conclusion to the doctrinal section. So just track with me for a minute here. Think of how fitting it is that three chapters focusing on God's person and God's works end in doxology. A scription of praise to God for who He is, for what He's done. Brothers and sisters, that is not coincidence. That is where the knowledge of God always leads His people. It leads us to uplifted hands in praise to God for who He is and for what He's done, as well as to knees bent low before Him in prayer. To pray and to dream that He'd do what He's done in the past again in our day among us. One more um, structure type thing that I think helps place our text as the fitting, as the natural, as the joyful, as the sincere conclusion to all that's been revealed about God in the first three chapters is the reality that this is not the first doxology in Ephesians. 
What's awesome about these first three chapters is that they begin and they end the same way in doxology. So if you think back to the beginning of the letter, what's the first thing that Paul says after his greeting? Remember his greeting? He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the next thing he says? It's verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is that? It's doxology. That is ascription of praise to God. Blessedness to the being of God. And what happens after the doxology, really for the next three chapters, but in particular for the next 11 verses, which are one sentence. Let me just refresh your mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who, wor who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So you have greeting, doxology, praise to the being of God for who He is, for what He's done, that not only goes through verse 14, but really through all three of these first chapters of Ephesians until we come again to doxology concluding this section in our text this morning. So the three chapters of Ephesians on the doctrine of God begin and they end the same way in doxology. The doxology in chapter 1 verse 3 looks ahead to all that Paul is about to reveal about the being and the works of God. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, look back at all that Paul has written about the being and the works of God. So that kind of places our text in the letter as a whole this morning. It is the natural, joyful, sincere response to the being of God in chapters 1 through chapter 3. Chapter 1 through chapter 3. But I want to zoom in a little bit in chapter 3. Because our two verses are not only found in the end of one big section in chapters 1 through 3, but they're also found in connection with a smaller section of verses that begins where I began our reading this morning in verse 14. 
where Paul is on his knees praying for the believers in Ephesus. And what's he praying for them? He's praying for them that God would strengthen them by His Spirit to know the love of Christ and to be full of Christ. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Jesus may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of of God. And this is where we catch up with Paul this morning in our text because our text is his recognition that the God he's just talked about for three chapters is in fact able to answer his prayers for these believers at the church in Ephesus. So that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves beholding the person of our God, being reminded of his wondrous works, being left with hands held high in praise and knees bent low in prayer. The first thing that I want us to see in our text this morning is the actual doxology. Because verses 20 and 21 are one 43-word sentence where the beginning and the ending actually form the doxology and the middle is just full of descriptors of that which Paul is saying makes God worthy to be praised in this particular situation. So this isn't just generic praise. This is God revealing himself in a specific situation that resulted in praise. The doxology is, beginning in verse 20, now to him. And for a moment, that's all I want you to see from verse 20. Now to him. Verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Amen. So Paul has just said that God's eternal plan was to make himself known in Christ and through the church. So part of Paul's doxology is a recognition and a prayer that God would do that very thing. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. So this is Paul latching on to what God has revealed about himself and his intentions in the world. And it's him coming before God and praising him for who he is and for his ability to do what he wants and then praying that God would in fact do that very thing. So he's saying, God, your stated intention is to make your glory known in Christ and through the church. So glory be to you, God, because you're worthy of this. And nobody is going to stand in your way from accomplishing this. So do it, Lord. Glorify yourself in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. And that is what doxology is. Again, it is praise of the being of the eternal God and praise of his works, whether those works are past works that have displayed his glory or future works that will display his glory afresh and anew. And just, again, um, track with me here for a minute. If this passage were only, 
only, which it's not, but if it were only praise of the unchanging, eternal being of God and praise of the works that he's done in history, it would be enough, wouldn't it? It would be enough to keep our hands lifted high and our hearts full of joy that we are in him, in this God, in his family, united to his son, part of his plan. But this passage is more than that. There, there is a future aspect of Paul's praise. Which magnifies his sovereignty because God is in fact guiding all of history to the end that he is appointed for it. So God reveals to us his nature and his works. And I said that if all this was was a past record of what he's revealed about himself and his works in the past, it would be enough to keep us praising and keep us praying and keep us full of joy forever, just like from the other end. If God in his sovereignty detailed everything he intends to do in the future, so people times, places that shouldn't leave us passive and lazy and sitting around waiting for God to bring His plan to pass. If God in His sovereignty revealed that kind of detail, I would hope it would leave us overwhelmed with praise at all that He's planned and on our knees in prayer that He might be pleased to use us to bring it to pass. But he doesn't do that all the time, does he? He does reveal those kind of details at times in Scripture, doesn't he? But you must admit those details are pretty rare. And that isn't discouraging, brothers and sisters. Because what he does for us, particularly in this text, is arguably more stunning, more stunning than if he just laid out all the details of his sovereign plan for us until the end of time. And what is more stunning in our text than God revealing all the details of his sovereign plan is that he tells us exactly where all of history is going. He states it plainly, all of history is going towards his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. But what is more stunning is that after stating where all of history is going under his sovereign guidance, he then turns us loose. He turns us loose to pray and to dream about how he might be pleased to bring that plan to pass. That's where Paul goes in this doxology. So let's reinsert the detail that we set aside to see the actual doxology because this is where we're set free to pray and to dream. If you don't mind, I'm going to grab this. The God that Paul praises is the God who is able in this text to do two things. First, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. And he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we think. And there is a difference between those two, so we're going to take them one at a time. 
First, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. It makes sense that Paul is thinking about God answering prayer. He's, he's just finished praying that God would grant the believers in Ephesus strength by the Spirit to know Christ and to be full of Christ. And he acknowledges here that God is able to do that far more abundantly than what he has asked. So, so we took the time that we did this morning to ground our two verses where they're found in Ephesians because these two verses are arguably, I know everybody says this, but I'm just saying it again this morning in reference to this text. These two verses are two of the most misused verses maybe in the Bible. At least if that's an overstatement, at least maybe in this book. We can't just yank verses 20 and 21 from the argument of Ephesians 3 or from being the fitting conclusion to the first three chapters of Ephesians and just use these verses to hope that whatever we feel like praying for, with no boundaries, that God might be willing to do way more, which to us typically means what? It typically means our gain or quantity. So just to give you a really silly example to show you what I'm talking about. So let's just, I, I pray for $100, and I'm going to yank this text from Ephesians 3 and just hope that God will answer my prayer for $100 by giving me $500. Because why? Because God is able He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that I ask or think. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that may in fact happen as a gift of God's grace to me. God loves to bless his children. But I'm just trying to help you keep in mind that what he's talking about here is going way beyond the prayers of his people, specifically as they relate directly to his stated purpose of granting existence to all things, which is the display of his glory in Christ and in the church throughout all generations. So if I can use my own language here to describe this, his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, they form kind of just, they form the boundaries to our prayers. Whatever I'm praying for, this is what I ought to be seeking in my request, that in this specific situation that calls for me to look beyond all of the resources that God has granted human beings to live life in a responsible, accountable way to Him in prayer, my prayer for him to step in and be God in this situation ought to be motivated by a desire for him to answer in such a way that accomplishes what he wants to accomplish more than anything else in the world in every generation of history, which is his words to display his glory in Christ and in the body of Christ. That's why Paul asks these believers in verse 13 not to lose heart over his sufferings. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He's saying, don't feel bad for me that my suffering on your behalf is the means by which God is doing what he says is his desire to do in the world. His glory is on display in Christ among you by my suffering. His prayer then for them 
is that God would strengthen them by His Spirit for this same thing. The display of His glory in Christ among them, in whatever way God should choose to display it, which is, in this context, I think implies suffering for them. God being the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask means that in our prayers we ought to be seeking to the best of our reasoning power and the best of our sensitivity to the Spirit the answer to our prayer that might best display God. His glorious nature revealed in His glorious works in Christ and in us to our generation so that when God answers, however He answers, we're brought back again off of our knees to uplifted hands and praise because His way of accomplishing His stated end of all things is always perfect. It's always perfect. So God is worthy to be praised. His being, His works... They call for generation after generation praise from his people. Uplifted hands. Praise to him for who he is, for what he's done. Which then leads us back to our knees to pray to him that he would answer every prayer that we feel prompted by the Spirit to pray in the way that most clearly, most gloriously displays once again his glorious person, his glorious works. So what does that mean regarding prayer? It means that access to God was never intended to be an unloading ground of everything that our selfish hearts desire. In hope that God, simply because He is all-powerful, will give our selfish hearts exceeding abundantly above all that we ask Him for. We're learning that in this text, access to His throne granted through the death of His Son in our place and for our sins, is granted so that those whom He has filled with His Spirit would seek in our prayers what the Spirit Himself seeks, which is the glory of Christ in the church throughout all generations. And I think we can be confident from this text that when His people pray this way, we can in fact anticipate God answering those prayers far more abundantly than what we have asked. And it seems like he's being redundant, doesn't it? When he follows that by saying that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think as well. But in this passage, asking and thinking are in fact different. Our understanding of think is far too intellectual than what Paul is saying here. Think is what you do in school, in seminary, when you're using math to budget your spending for the month, or when you're just performing your responsibilities at your job. And it's not what Paul's talking about. So for the sake of seeing this distinction between Paul's asking and thinking, set aside for a moment, think, and think the word imagine. I'm not doing an injustice to this text to insert that word in the place of think. Brothers and sisters, imagine is the word. As a matter of fact, depending on what translation you have this morning, think might in fact be translated imagine. It is in some. It's connected to asking, but here's the distinction. This word busts 
the logic and the reason out of asking. It takes us off of our knees at our bedside in the urgency or the stress of the moment as we think deeply about how God might be using this situation to show His glory and trying to the best of our God-given reason to submit ourselves to that end and pray to that end. This distinction takes us out of that responsible, heavy, weighty, urgent situation to, so to speak, figuratively speaking, throw us out on our backs into an open field of green grass on a nice summer day to look up at the clouds and to use our imagination to dream about how God might love to explode logic and reveal his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in our generation. That's the distinction. So I'm not necessarily asking you about your reasonable, responsible, regular, planned, devotional, prayer list, prayer life where you come before God regularly with your requests and in faith bring them before Him. I trust that's a regular part of every one of our lives who profess to be a Christian. I'm asking you something different. I'm asking myself something different. I'm asking you, when's the last time you did that? Not the former, but the latter. Not the responsible bedside, on our knees, planned out, praying, but the illogical. The open field, on our back, joyful dreaming. God wants us to think deeply and to pray accordingly about how He might be pleased to display His own glory in Christ and in the church to our generation and to future generations in the situations He's ordered for us, every one of them. And then to praise Him for how He answers our prayers because His answers are always the overflow of His perfect, glorious being and always accomplish His ends. He loves to glorify Himself by honoring His Son in the church and in the world in every generation. But brothers and sisters, He also wants us to not be afraid to think bigger. Which means here to dream big, to display His glory in Christ, in the, in, in the church, in our generation, in a way that throws logic out the window and sets aside the responsible God-given power of reason. As it often relates to specific urgent situations. So Covington Baptist... May you continue in all that you do. In all of your public gatherings, in all of your private devotions, in all of your relationships, may you continue to behold the being of our God. To continue to remind yourselves of the display of His glory in the past, in all His wondrous works that you've seen from Him, in His Word, and in your lives, and in this body, so that you live in light of those things in a continual posture of praise toward Him for who He is and for what He's done. And then let us in the present, in real life, 
God-ordained, urgent situations think deeply about how God might have ordered this for the display of His glory and pray accordingly. And I think, if I were to be honest, all of that from this text, as far as application goes, is probably just a helpful, challenging reminder because we often fail miserably in our praise of God's nature and God's works, and we're much too often self-centered in our regular, reasonable, daily prayers. So we're reminded, we're challenged. But perhaps more pressing this moment, this morning, let us not be afraid to throw logic out the window at times. Never to leave the boundaries of God's stated purpose for the display of His glory in Christ and in the church in all generations, but not to always be limited to our reasoning powers about how God might be pleased to bring that to pass. Let us not be afraid to revert back to childhood before you knew what logic was. Those of us that have small kids have living examples of this in front of us every day of our lives. Kids lost in their own worlds of dreaming and imagining and as sophisticated adults who used to be there We shrug it off or just laugh and roll our eyes, but I'm saying that type of dreaming is what this second half of Paul's doxology calls us here to do. So let us remember that the God who is a God who, unlike us, is not bound by logic and at times loves to explode logic in order to glorify himself by setting the glory of his Son on display in a way that will be remembered for generations to come. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to set aside your adulthood. This is your chance. And figuratively speaking, run out into the open field of green grass on a nice summer day and lay down on your back and look up at the clouds and dream big for the display of God's glory in Christ at Covington Baptist. And then to pray that he might use you in particular to bring it to pass so that this doesn't become just a passive, lazy dreaming, but an active, involved dreaming that's going to lead to conversations among you and planning among you and work among you and more praying about His glory in Christ and in this church body, in this community, in this moment of time because His state of purpose, this is what God is seeking among you. Above all things. At all times. In every generation, including this one. Forever and forever. Amen. Pray with me.